Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I'm thrilled to have Leslie Joan Lupo back on the show. Leslie is an intuitive practitioner at Canyon Ranch, and she's been there for 23 years, and she is internationally known for her accuracy. A gifted healer, NLP specialist, and near-death experiencer, she has a unique and rare gift for explaining the science behind intuition and spiritual phenomena. After being killed by a stampede of horses, her profound near-death experience resulted in her brown-breaking book entitled, Remember, Every Breath is Precious, Dying Taught Me How to Live. Leslie was born in Chicago and raised in a boisterous Sicilian, is that right? Did you just say that, Sicilian? Yes. (laughs) Yes, Yes, family. She attended college in Albuquerque, New Mexico and graduated with a BA in psychology and a BFA in studio art. At the same time that she studied science, art, and psychology, Leslie reawakened her intuitive awareness and crossed paths with many inspirational teachers, including Native American medicine. Welcome back to the program, Leslie. Hello. Today, we are here to talk about um, the children that have been coming into this world for a while and the lessons that they're, they're bringing and the energy and the magic. And I know um, you talked about in your, in your book, um, Bodhisattva. And I did not know what that, I, I actually thought that was a word that you made up or something <laughs> when I first heard you talk about it in an interview. And then I'm, I'm, st- I'm taking a class in Buddhism. And then I realized that it is, um, it's about attaining the Buddhahood. And it says something that I, that I read, a Bodhisattva is a being who has taken the Bodhi, I'm sorry, Bodhisattva vow to help save all sentient beings before going into full nirvana or enlightenment. Mm -hmm. The term is also used for human beings who have taken the Bodhisattva vow to heart to such an extent that they will keep it even in their next lives. So let's talk a little bit about that. What are these Bodhisattva kids that are that are coming in? Well, that conversation came up when I asked me. I'm very curious. I'm always asking questions. When I was little, yes. used to send me home, you know. But I just love. <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> I could always find someone. I loved encyclopedias, you know. Um, but in, right. What I said was, what will I do if I come up here, if I do stay? I wanted to have an objective view to what are my options if I go back to Earth? What are my options if I stay? And this was 
Right. Let me interrupt one, one second. For people who are listening to this and haven't listened to the first interview, please go back and listen oh. because Leslie is talking about um, after the accident and she actually passed over to the other side and she was given a choice whether she would come back to this earthly realm or stay in that amazingly beautiful place. So, so anyway, so, and, and she calls you, you call that upstairs. Yes. I yes. didn't know what to call it when they came back. Yes. I was kind of a, almost borderline atheist. I couldn't have said heaven. So I kind of came back like, okay, what was that all about? <laughs> so it. my group was in charge of placing one of the types of bodhisattvas that do come down. And you're right. The definition is the way I understand it too is that when you're incarnating, you get to a place where you no longer have to incarnate and you can go into heaven permanently. And then you, many people say, no, I won't go into heaven. The Bodhisattva vow um, that the Dalai Lama talks about is, I will return again and again until all sentient beings are awakened. And that's the the gist of it so mina was explaining this to me with a lot of pictures and information about how when homo sapiens was the first incarnation of humans that could fully con evolve to conceptualize god in the, the wonderful co-creating adoring god but feeling adored not being afraid of god and that was the, right now it's 160,000 or 170,000 years, but it'll, the, every few years they kick it back a notch. But Homo sapiens has been here. And what Mina showed me was that older souls would incarnate into this group of humans to be a spiritual guide. And those were the first bodhisattvas. They tend to be very egoless. They tend to be drawn to the divine, to working like um, for spiritual awareness themselves. And they tend to be born into families that recognize the spiritual gift of the child and will take them to the shaman or the convent or the uh, monastery or become a rabbi or a, a Brahmin because these children are very gifted, but the families they're brought born into notice it and, and help it. So right. the second group, what Mina showed me was in the mid 1800s, global consciousness had connected enough to where another level came in. And these were the, what I first called the blindfolded bodhisattvas because the bodhisattva is born with a yearning to serve God in whatever culture they're in and will use those tools to serve God. The blindfolded bodhisattva is born into a much younger family, and they don't identify with the culture or the exclusivity, you know, my path right, everyone else is going, you know, wrong. And they look around and they kind of feel like that ugly duckling, you know, the little swan that doesn't realize that there's nothing wrong with being a duck, but he's not a duck. And until he sees swans, then he knows who he is. 
but they're brought in for a couple of really specific purposes. Many families pass on generational hatred um, and prejudices. They're taught those things. Babies are not born hating and prejudiced. They're not. Babies, children's toddlers have no qualm about talking to someone with a different color skin or hair or missing an arm. They don't really pay attention to that. They seem to be able to connect by the heart. And so these things are taught. So it's kind of like when you think about the Hatfield and McCoy feud, those kids are trained to carry the burden of the pain that my great, 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 great grandfather went through. And these right. kids cannot be taught that. These blindfolded bodhisattvas can just shake their head and say, no, that just doesn't make sense. I can't do it. They're also exceptionally forgiving. They will forgive again and again. Um, and they are elevating true forgiveness where they don't hold grudges. And they're here to break that chain of any type of generational prejudices, where it's, whether it's sexist or religion or country or skin color, um, their, you know, gender, they're allowing that everyone is equal in God's eyes. I mean, that's the truth. That's the unconditional love. Every human being on the planet is a son or daughter of God and have the right for that. And that's what the blindfolded bodhisattvas are doing because they absolutely cannot be taught prejudices, but they feel like an outcast. They feel like I've had so many letters. That's the number one thing that I get from my book is these people that are saying, oh my God, I thought I was a changeling. And when they realize that there's a reason for that kind of isolation as a child and that fact that they stuck to their principles and to what has turned out to be a higher um, experience. Like I had one client share with me a story in which she was so... Um, she was accused, she was very popular in high school, accused of doing something really bad and very ostracized as cliques go. And instead of becoming bitter and bully like the people that had turned her world upside down, the fellow students, um, she's now a lawyer for workplace violations. And so she took that pain and transmuted it into a um, service to others. So, and she's a blindfolded bodhisattva. Um, and they, they, they kind of absorb the negativity and they transmute it into love and forgiveness. And that's a really critical thing is true forgiveness. And then also, again, the last one is love forgiveness. And the one thing more, they have to begin to learn how to play. Because these blindfolded bodhisattvas are coming down for a service and they are so unaware of who they are that they get, when, whenever an older soul, any, any older soul, is raised and sees things like hatred or bullying they, or selfishness or narcissism, they kind of can become selfless to a fault. So the yes. blindfolded bodhisattvas have to learn to have boundaries 
And that unconditionally loving does not mean vulnerability. Unconditional love, in my definition of it, is truly understanding that every person is God's child, but I decide who I am emotionally, physically, or financially vulnerable to. So I can have, you know, someone in my family who would make Mother Teresa look, you know, or Joan Crawford look like Mother Teresa, and I can still be loving and patient with them, but I can love them at a distance kind of thing. It's more like having some gentle boundaries. Right. Interesting. And just a couple of things I wanted to, um, just talking about love, this really touched me um, when you talked about the story of Quinian. Is that the, the word Quinian or the person who was shown, who heard at the cry of a baby? Oh, Quan Yin. Quan Yin, Quan Yin, yeah. And I think the reason I want you to share it is because I was just thinking about this. That's, I think that's how many of us remember that incredible love. Yeah. And it's because of the love for, for our children. Yeah. So can you, can you tell that story? Yes. She was the first person attributed with Bodhisattva. She was the first being that, you know, again, in the cycle of the Eastern religions that have the concept of reincarnation, she's the first one in recorded history that said on her deathbed, you know, she had become enlightened. She began to teach. She had schools of meditation and prayer and, you know, to get people off the wheel of reincarnation. And at her deathbed, she was ready to go off and go into nirvana, which is heaven in Eastern terms, and never come back. And she heard a baby cry. And it touched her heart, her mother heart, so strongly that she stopped and she said, I will come back until all people are opened in their heart. And so she's the first bodhisattva. Yeah. Wow. I just, I just yeah. love that. Story. Divine mother. So yes, divine mother. And um, so jumping back to the blindfolded um, bodhisattvas. So they are not aware that hence the word blindfolded. And I know you also talk about that. They're not really expected to come here and learn lessons. They're here to simply elevate simply <laughs> they're here to elevate consciousness and like you just said to um, break the cycle of generational hatred and and prejudice um, so even though if they leave this earthly realm at a young age they've they've done their job right right and it's like bringing down a vibration that we've not had before the door for people who are aspiring to have a higher um a higher life on the planet that's aspiring to to have that available to them right. the term from blindfolded bodhisattva which is quite a mouthful i was watching a documentary and they on uh, magicians and they showed a picture of a little video on harry houdini blindfolded him, which I perked up, 
wrapped him in a chain, put him in a bag <laughs> in the river, and he had to come out on his own. And that's what the blindfolded bodhisattvas have to do. Right. They're put in different situations. They have to, on their own, find that spirituality deep within them. They have to do that all by themselves. Right. This is from whatever faith they were brought into and life and culture, but they really go into an, an overdrive of inventing a new recipe of their spiritual. So it's like they have to go within the, to find their spiritual center. So the regular bodhisattva is brought into a culture into a family that accepts the fact that there are older souls and then puts them with the right teachers to activate them. Whereas the blindfolded bodhisattvas or what I call now Houdini kids, they have to do it all by themselves, which is really difficult. Right. Yeah. Do you think that a lot of the kids even coming in in the last, oh gosh, decade more than a decade you know last 50 years or so but especially recently these kids that do seem a little bit out of place and and all of the anxiety and the frustration and they seem to simply just want to do good and do you would you call those kids like bodhisattvas um, or houdini kids I described this in my book, this vision I had about how it was a vision I had of me landing in a swamp. And then as I evolved and became more conscious, I emerged from the swamp and then the swamp turned into grassy land. And I remember, and this was in like, um, like late 80s, maybe like 1989 is when I had this vision or 1990. And I remember looking over my shoulder, I heard laughter and I turned around and I saw these children, like young teenagers, like 12, 14, 15 year olds coming down and hitting the ground that the Houdini kids had solidified because by absorbing the negativity and not retaliating, we were transmuting the swamp into grassy, beautiful grassy with these little star flowers on it land and so it's interesting because when you start researching indigo kids indigo kids came down in the late 80s so where did that name come from from just the chakra yes it's related to the the upper chakra right i don't know who coined the term that's a good question but at this point today there are still bodhisattvas being born there are still Houdini kids being born. And now to, to add to that, there are these indigo kids being born. And you're right, these are the children that are 12, 13, 14, that are doing these phenomenal things, like inventing things or conscious, you know, there's a six-year-old girl who's got a lemonade stand, you know, and she gives half of the money away that she makes to a charity. These are the children, like you said, that just, it's like they hit the ground running. They're right. born into families that, again, are very supportive of that type of consciousness and cheer them on to develop and better themselves and stand up for the world. 
I mean, we're very global now. We can't get away from it. If the coronavirus has taught us one thing, we are all connected. Absolutely. Nothing to race around so quickly. Come on, guys, wake up. Let's wake up. Yeah. So what what is the message, do you think, um, or, or what, what can we do knowing, having this knowledge to help the very young, um, you know, trust their inner guidance and to find their their way a little bit, a little bit easier and ju just to, to help them? Um, that's a really good question. I think that one of the things I was shown was that the change is going to come from like more of a grassroots level. And what I mean by change, it's beginning to manifest heaven on earth. It's not a bad change. It's not a horrific thing. It has to do with the, the love. And, you know, we've got so many amazing stories from all these just normal little people that are doing these heroic things to help others in these stories. Yes, you have the odd man out that's buying up all the, you know, hand sanitizer, but he's the rarity which is why he's in the headlines. The good people are, are not getting the attention simply because they're, they don't need to. Right. And any crisis brings us to our highest and our worst, but the majority goes to the highest. And one of the things I believe is that, and we see this time and time again, how consciousness shifts. It comes during crisis. When spirit needs us to focus on God, what's that saying? There's not an atheist in a, in a, what are those called? In a war, you know, in a, right, they right. dug, I can't remember the name of them. Atheists yeah. in a war zone. And um, from that perspective, if we need a crisis to bring us to God, then spirit's going to keep giving us a crisis that light within us we are drawn to God we no longer need crisis and and that's a wonderful part of again raising consciousness these children that are coming in if you have a, a really gifted child with with mentoring and of course uh, monitoring what they're doing help them do these things like this six-year-old girl whose mission is to help this oncology department in a hospital near where she lives. Help them be selfless. Um, because these kids are not being taught. I mean, again, greed is something that we're taught. There's a really interesting study that just came out on why dogs love toddlers, because children automatically give everything away. <laughs> I mean, toddlers, two, three, four-year-olds, have to be taught not to give their ice cream cone to the dog. And it's like, we they're so selfless that when you see a lot of parenting books or you know blogs, they're, they're rather harsh. And there's a way to teach a child who's selfless, just include yourself in your decisions. And if you do have a child who's selfless, selfish, you need to teach them to share. But you can't use the same program for both children because they're very opposite. So one thing is watching the child 
And if it's selfless to a fault, then you just teach it how to include themselves in their decisions, you know? Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's wow. So um, one thing that I wanted to segue just, just a little bit, um, I wanted to talk about the astrological, I don't know if implication mm-hmm. would be the word, but how it, it, which was so fascinating um, about it and your, your near death experience and the names. Yeah. Yeah. That's a funny story. And I have to start by saying when I was, whenever I go back into my memories and picture upstairs and the love and the light, and I just start to drift away. I was always, I, I can't say, I noticed when I was walking up the table that Rao had this beautiful ultraviolet shirt on purple, beautiful. And then these kind of orangey brown pants. And it, it struck me odd when you have all the colors of the universe to work with, rich and deep, just so vibrant, and you pick colors that clash. I could never make sense of that. And then one day at Kenyon Ranch, we had a man come in and he's an astrologer. There's a metaphysical department at Kenyon Ranch and he's a metaphysical, you know, he's an astrologer. He does more of the Eastern or Oriental. So we did a trade. I do the tarot cards. I did a reading for him and he did the I Ching tarot or astrology for me. And he's talking, and I'm laughing because he's talking about my first 30 years. That's when I was supposed to die. And he says, oh, my goodness, how did you survive this? You're supposed to die. He said that? Yes. And my second 30 years, he looks again around a certain time in my life, mid, you know, early, mid-30s. He goes, you, you, you look like you die again. And then the last 30 years is um, going to be heaven on earth. (laughs) Seriously. And I'm sitting there. He knew nothing about me, and I'm laughing. And finally, I explained to him, I had this near-death experience. I was supposed to die in my early 20s. I opted to stay. And then I did die when I was 36. And And I started to tell him, well, when I got to the names Mina and Rao, he stopped me, and he said, have you ever had Ayurvedic astrology done? And I said, oh, once in India, but I don't remember it. And so he said, write down the information, because obviously I know the date and the time. It's like burned into my brain. And um, he came back the next day, and he was like so excited, and he was explaining you, because Rao is in the north node of the moon, and Mina, these are Sanskrit terms, Mina is Pisces. And the north node of the moon goes through Pisces on this particular transit once every 20 years. And it, was, it only stays 28 minutes. And in the middle of that 28 minutes is when I had my near-death experience. Oh, my gosh. And also, when I was upstairs and I was talking to Saraswati, I said, why did this happen now? And she went, she had this paper manifest, and she drew it. And then she drew a long V, drew another dot, and drew up to the top another dot. So I've got three dots. Looks like a crack in the wall. That's all I could think of. But of course, it made perfect sense upstairs. I went, oh, yes, I get it. Sure. Um, and then I, I'm like, what was that all about? 
Well, here I've got Jupiter and Venus at the very top of the divine mother and father at the very top. And right at the bottom, I've got Pluto, which is Hades. So I get a 28-minute window to slide down into Hades and pop back out with no damage or very little damage. And then the funny thing was, is without me even telling, I didn't tell him what colors Rao was wearing, but he, he had written down that every, everything has a color and a stone in India. So the color of Rao is ultraviolet purple, a beautiful, like, knock your eyes out purple. And the stone is Hessenite garnet, which is an orangey brown. <laughs> and I just went, okay, that's wow. even for me, that's woo-woo. Because I was like, it's too, too bizarre. And in the back of the book, he wow. went, the chart is there for people who know astrology, they can look at it. But I always recommend if, if, you, if you've had like a really traumatic event or if you've had a near-death experience, it's not a bad idea to go and have the astrology done for that day. Because as he explained it, it was such an eye-opening. It made, it pulled so many things that I still right. understand. Wow. So in, in that sense, I don't consider it woo-woo. It's just more, just more confirmation. Not that, not that you need confirmation by any means, but um, yeah, I love astrology. I'm, I'm going to have an astrologist on um, soon. And I just, it, it's just so, so fascinating. Well, Leslie, thank you again so much for, oh, for coming on the show. And and just quick quickly, you you um, for those who once again had, did not watch the show before, Raul is um, was one of her guides when she was upstairs. And could you um, tell us who Swat Swat Sarti is? That a Hindu Saraswati? Yes, in the Hall of Knowledge. When I went into this room, um. It didn't look as big from the outside. It was a building and I was very drawn to it. And when I walked in, all I saw were shelves going up and down the wall from the floor to the ceiling, little tiny shelves and bigger shelves. And I walked over and there were scrolls or books. And it seemed to be, I, it was, I called it the hall of knowledge. And when people yes. talk to it, they say, oh, that's the Akashic Records. Well, apparently that's my hangout place. Remember how I said I like encyclopedias? It's like being- Yes, yes. Encyclopedia. And Saraswati, who I had no idea who he, she was at that time because I was an agnostic atheist. I didn't, and I didn't even hear her voice. All I heard was music. And she said it a couple of times and I still couldn't process it. And she laughed and she said, on earth, they call me Saraswati, who just happens to be- in Hinduism, the goddess of knowledge. So I was like, okay, yeah. Wow. In this huge light. I think I, I have a feeling I'll end up in that, in with those Akashic records too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very I much, I'm very much like that. Well, yeah, we need that kind of information. Yeah. We need learning, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And once again, if you could tell um, tell our listeners how to find you, if they would like to find you and connect with you. The best way to connect with me is on my webpage. And that's Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, Joan, 
lupo, L-U-P-O, dot com. And great. a lot more information about the Houdini kids. There's, uh, you could see me as Cowgirl Leslie. In fact, I'm on the cover of the book. That's one of the pictures um, that we took it. Oh, it is. Uh, yeah, I'm one of the cowboys on the, on the cover. And um, it just has a lot more information on it. Right, right. Yeah, the book's just amazing. Well, thank you so much. This is a lot to, <laughs> to think about and absorb. And I just, I've so enjoyed having two conversations with you now. So, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. So you have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.